Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome as we get ready to dig into God's Word and continue in our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the series that we've been calling Rebuild, because in this Humpty Dumpty sort of world we live in, we need someone to do what all the king's horses and all the king's men can't, to put it back together again. We need God to put it back together again. And thank God, he's in the business of doing just that, of reviving hearts and restoring life which we've been watching him do at this particular time, at this particular point in his people's history, as he's rebuilt first his people's identity, and then second, through them, rebuilt their worship, and which we're going to watch him do today as he rebuilds their joy. Because if you remember, when we left them, having returned to their land and having put the altar in its place and having laid again the foundation of their temple, we were told at the end of Ezra chapter 3 that mixed with a measure of joy was the weeping of some who were not satisfied with what God was doing among them. Well, today we're going to see how God turns even that weeping to joy and does so in the most unlikeliest of ways. We're going to see it as we turn our attention to Ezra chapter, chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there uh, where to start, I just want to read the first five verses of chapter 4. This is one of those days where we're going to cover a larger chunk of material and, and in order to see that as a whole and how it hangs together, and I'm going to walk through most of that as we go. But I do want to start by reading these first five verses because they really serve to, to set the, the stage for this section of the story. And so you could follow along with me as I do that, again, as I read the first five verses of Ezra chapter 4. And this is what it says. This is God's word. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, my prayer for us today and really for every day that we gather around your word is that we would hear and have our joy increased. Our joy in what you've done and what you're doing and what you have promised to one day do for good. In the name of your Son and who's coming and coming again, we do rejoice. And in whose name we pray. Amen. Those who attempt great feats inevitably face great opposition. Those who attempt life's greatest feats are those who inevitably face life's greatest opposition. Just think of Gandhi and his attempts to establish Indian independence through nonviolent demonstrations in the face of British colonialism at its worst. Or think of Nelson Mandela and his fight against South Africa's apartheid. Think of Martin Luther King and, and all it cost him to lead the civil rights movement. Or Abraham Lincoln, who led our country through the Civil War. That those who attempt life's greatest feats are those who inevitably face life's greatest opposition which you may know from your own life, even if it's only the last time you tried to, to, to clean out the last carton of ice cream, right? Talk about civil wars. But nowhere, nowhere is it more evident than with those who attempt great feats for God. It, it was the French novelist Gustave Flaubert, who, who wrote, you can calculate the worth of a man by the number of his enemies and the importance of his work by the amount that it is attacked. And while certainly that's not a universal truth, isn't that often the case for those who do great things for God? Just think of Bonhoeffer. Who, who was executed as a pastor in Germany because he would not bend the knee to the Third Reich. Or William Tyndale, who, who was burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into the language of the people. Or of the countless others throughout history who have been killed for telling people about Jesus. Because it's like the, the minister G. Campbell Morgan used to say during his days at Westminster Chapel in London. When he'd say, if there is no opposition in the place where you are serving, then you are serving in the wrong place. Because again, those who attempt great, life's greatest feats are those who inevitably face life's greatest opposition. But sometimes, especially when it comes to doing great things for God, the opposition is what makes you want to throw in the towel. The opposition is what discourages you the most and makes you want to give up and go home. Because the opposition, rather than confirm that you're doing these great things for God, the opposition is what makes you 
wonder whether God is even in it. And yet, what we're going to see in these chapters today is that oftentimes, when when it comes to God and his gospel work, he's the one who turns the most extraordinary opposition into the most extraordinary opportunity. That far from leaving his people discouraged, rebuilds within them the most extraordinary joy. That God turns, again, extraordinary opposition into extraordinary opportunity to rebuild within his people extraordinary joy. That's what we're going to look at this morning, beginning first with the extraordinary opposition, which in our passage starts in those verses we read back in Ezra chapter 4. When it says in verse 1 that that the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, after hearing that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, approached Zerubbabel and their other leaders and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do and have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. This is where the opposition starts. Notice, though, that on the surface, it doesn't really sound like opposition. It just sounds like an offer to help. Until you realize that while on the surface it sounds like a, just an innocent offer to help, deeper down, it comes with one massive string attached. And specifically, if you look more closely at what they say, that these adversaries want the the way they've worshipped God to be acknowledged as just as legit as the way this remnant has. So they say, we want to help because we worship your God as you do. But that they mean, what they mean by worshiping your God as you do, is that they've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of this king, Esarhaddon, who who brought them there nearly 150 years before. Because if you're interested in the history, this is what the kings of Assyria, including this guy Esarhaddon, had done with conquered lands like Israel. They had carried off its own people into exile and then replaced them with foreigners who would to some degree adopt as their own the religious practices of their predecessors. So move to Israel, worship the God of Israel. But not by giving up their own religion. Just by mixing it all together like a little kid does with all the different colors of Play-Doh. But that's not worshiping God like these Israelites did, is it? That's how they worshiped God before. But that's what had gotten them kicked out of their land in the first place. Now when they're brought back, they rebuild worship, like we saw last week, according to God's word setting the altar in its place and sacrificing on it what God's word required. Not just sacrificing on any high hill, 
like he was just any other old God, but doing it according to his word. Why? Because worshiping the one true God isn't just about worshiping him however you want or worshiping him alongside whatever else you want, but worshiping him as he wants and worshiping him alone. So this is where the opposition starts, the, the trouble for Zerubbabel. Even though at, at this point, what's perhaps most extraordinary about it is how subtle it is. Coming in the form of an offer for help. Because Lord knows this ragtag bunch of refugees could have used it. Maybe like you think KBC could use it. But help like that, this did God really say kind of help, isn't a help worth having. Because it's better not to have the help at all than to have the help undo the very thing you need help with. Which as an aside is one of the reasons membership in our body comes before partnership. Why we've simplified and streamlined the process, but also why we're taking it so seriously. Because before we're going to partner with someone in following Jesus and growing Jesus' followers, we want to make sure that individual is actually following Jesus for themselves. And following Jesus like Jesus wants to be followed. Not just how they want. Because again, it's better not to have the help at all than to have help that will undo the very thing you need help with. And, and this is where the opposition starts, in the form of an offer to help. But notice that it quickly escalates once that help is refused. It has a way of doing that. Zerubbabel and the other leaders of Israel functionally tell these guys to get lost. But it says in verse 4 that these same people of the land then discouraged them and made them afraid to build. Afraid in the sense that they were afraid for their lives. And it says that they made them afraid, specifically verse 5, by bribing counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the days of Darius, the king that reigned after him. An extraordinary, extended, extensive opposition, which the rest of chapter 4 says extended even past the reign of Darius well into the next century. If you could pick up the names there and the shifts in locale and, and the shifts in, in, in historical circumstances that extended well into the next century during the reigns of Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes which becomes important for later in the book of Ezra. But I want to focus our attention really back on the opposition to the building of the temple, which is picked up again in chapter 5. When the, the focus begins to shift from this extraordinary gospel opposition, that's what it is, a gospel opposition, to, to how God turns it into an extraordinary gospel opportunity. And yet, turns the opposition into opportunity, not by eliminating it, but by amplifying it. 
Look with me at Ezra chapter 5, which recounts how this work on the temple was stalled for, for nearly 16 years until it was resumed in the second year of the reign of King Darius under the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, who together, verse 1 says, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Good to know, right? Good to know that in the midst of the opposition, God was over them. Remember that, that, that God doesn't step off heaven's throne no matter how much we're having trouble with some earthly one. Amen? And yet, it's at this time when the work resumes and God was over them that the opposition begins to heat up. And verse 3 even catches the attention of Tetanai, the, the, the governor, along with his associates, who, who personally come to question the workers. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And they even go so far, verse 4, as asking, what are the names of the men who are building this building? Which had to be one of those moments, right? Catherine never had one of those moments. I've had plenty. She gets pulled over by a cop, and the first thing that he asks her is if she needs an escort home. I get pulled over. He's asking for my license and registration before he's even at the window. I have so many of these experiences. I cannot tell you how many times I was made to get, I have never done drugs in my life. How many times I'm told to get out of the car, tell them my name, my mom gets called, and my wife would get called. This is one of those moments. But notice again, verse 5, that it says, the eye of their God was on them. Yet not in the sense that this governor or his associates, for some inexplicable reason, drop the issue. Like some Jedi mind trick. You don't, you don't need my license and registration. No, not because they drop the issue, but rather it says that the eye of their God was on them in the sense that these government officials did not stop the work until the report should reach Darius the king and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is not what I would have called the eye of God being upon me if the officer said, I ain't going to give you a ticket until I check with my higher-ups. That the eye of their God was on them, turning opposition into opportunity. How? By ratcheting up the opposition to a whole nother level even though this is not, again, how we think God should work. Because if, if the, that letter comes back, right? If that letter comes back in the wrong way, in our mind, God's work is finito. And yet, this is sometimes, perhaps we could say many times, or at the most important times, exactly how God works turning opposition into opportunity by ratcheting the opposition up. And the letter of these officials to Darius occupies the rest of chapter 5. 
basically explaining to Darius, this is what we asked them, this is how they answered, this is what we suggest you do about it, go check up on their story about this decree from this past king named Cyrus, the, the king of Babylon, and let us know what we should do about it. But I really want to draw your attention not to the letter in chapter 5, but to the letter sent back by Darius in chapter 6. After Darius searched the kingdom and found the memo, isn't that so ordinary? Found the memo, that's literally what this says, the, the royal memorandum. Found the memo that had been filed in some backwater town where Cyrus had been staying when he made it, in Ekbatna. And this is what Darius says, beginning in verse 6. Now therefore, Tetanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. That's the directive. Stay back. Stay back. Let the work of this house on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Like the, the sheriff showing up and telling the officer to stand down. I had that happen to me as a teenager because the kid I was with, his dad had the sheriff on speed dial. I'll tell you that story later. It's like the sheriff showing up and telling the officer to stand down. Moreover, Darius says in verse 8, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the, this house of God. The, the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Which, just to be clear, means that the taxes from those of the very people who opposed the building of the temple were going to fund it. Because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? And he has no problem using public money for his personal purposes. Darius says, verse 9, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or, or oil, as the priests of, at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail. Why? That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Just like Cyrus had done, right? just like Cyrus had done before him, as God continues to use even the self-interest of these pragmatic kings to position history for the fulfillment of his purposes, turning the most extraordinary opposition into the most extraordinary opportunity to lastly rebuild within his people the most extraordinary joy. And here, let me just point out a few things in this last section of chapter six. First, that verse 13 says, 
according to the word sent by Darius, his government officials, did with all diligence what Darius had ordered. It worked. It worked. Look at God. It says in verse 14 that that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, so that they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius, and even it mentions Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Isn't that a great statement? By the decree of God and the decree of these kings. It's worth chewing on a bit as how to understand how our world works and how God works through it. By decree of God, by the decree of these kings. What I really want you to see is in verse 16 where it says, and the people of Israel The the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. The point is made again a few verses later. And let me just read from verse 19 to the end. It says this, that on the 14th day of the first month, just a few weeks later, just in time, the returned exiles kept the Passover. That was the celebration of them coming to the land the first time. For for it says, the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord the God of Israel. And they kept the the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And just especially note that there is no hint here of the weeping that had been mixed in with the joy when the foundation of that temple had been laid some 20 years before. Now it is joy through and through, like like a full sugared Coke kind of joy. Like, Like none of this Coke Zero kind of joy, right? This is a full sugared, Coke kind of joy, a full sugared polar bear sliding down the mountain, hand delivered in a glass bottle on Christmas Eve by Santa himself kind of joy. Because when it comes to God and his gospel work, he has a knack for turning the most extraordinary opposition into the most extraordinary opportunity that far from leaving his people discouraged, rebuilds within them the most extraordinary joy. But as extraordinary as this story is in the history of God's people, 
with its gospel opposition turned into gospel opportunity and even its gospel joy. Remember that it was merely looking forward to the day God's full gospel would be unfurled. When God would turn the greatest opposition, the opposition of his creatures for their creator, when they went so far as even crucifying his son, tearing down the temple of his body, when God would turn that opposition into the greatest opportunity, when through the power of building that temple again in the resurrection, he would reconcile them to himself. And God, through the gospel work of Jesus Christ, rebuilt within his people a joy so great they never even thought it possible. God just has a knack for taking the greatest gospel opposition and turning it into the greatest gospel opportunity to rebuild within his people the greatest gospel joy. And he did it in Jesus. Let me leave you then with three reminders. One for each of these, the opposition, the opportunity, and then the joy. First, with regard to the opposition, let me remind you that God is more than capable of turning gospel opposition into gospel opportunity. That he did it in the past and did it definitively in Jesus, but that likewise he continues to do just that today. That, that he's done it in China when Mao Zedong tried to, to snuff out Christianity, but inadvertently ended up propelling its growth from four million before the, the communist curtain fell to the more than 50 million Christians today. That he's doing it, God's doing it in the UK where, where secularization has spurred on a whole new fascination with the faith. And that he's doing it here too. You know, like Branch Rickey would have said when he was trying to sign Jackie Robinson and break the color barrier in baseball, that every hint of op opposition merely creates sympathy for the cause. How much more for the cause of Christ? Second, with regard to the opportunity, let me remind you that as much as this world cannot worship God in its own way, no matter how subtly, there is more than enough room in God's redemptive plans for any who wish to join God's people in worshiping him his way. Those words of Zerubbabel when, when, when asked by the others to let them build alongside God's people, they, they are often stressed as the epitome of prejudice and bigotry. But what's often missed is that balancing the front end of this account is what we find at the end. That when the Passover is finally celebrated in chapter six, it's celebrated by who? 
by not only the people of Israel, but also, it says, by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord. So remember that as much as we ought not endorse anyone worshiping God their own way, we ought likewise to invite everyone to worship him God's way under the authority of God's word and the kingship of God's son. The opposition, the opportunity, third, with regard to the joy, remember that this is where all God's purposes in history of turning opposition into gospel opportunity, this is where all God's purposes are aimed. Our joy for God's glory. Our joy for God's glory. Our joy, which C.S. Lewis said, jumps under one's ribs tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and, and keeps one delightedly sleepless of nights. Because joy, he says, is what shocks one awake in this world when things like security and prosperity only put one to sleep. This is what we were made for. As John Calvin said, that there is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. Or as John Piper put it, that, that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and nowhere more than when we are satisfied in Jesus. So if you've forgotten, or maybe you've never known, what joy in the midst of the journey feels like, let me encourage you to turn back to the one who has taken you at your worst and bore the weight of that on the cross, that you might be accepted by God himself at Jesus' best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's many of us here today who are stuck in the midst of this kind of opposition. Many of us stuck in the midst of it, and many of us I would venture to say, who have lost our way within it. And I put myself right there, Lord, of being overwhelmed with the opposition rather than seeing it as part of your plan to further the gospel opportunity of making Jesus all in all. And not seeing it, I've lost my joy and I know that's not just simply me. I pray even looking back on the history of your people. I pray as that anticipated the coming of your son. That we would see it differently as we see it through Jesus. That even the worst of the opposition that we face in this life 
we would know you are more than capable of turning into opportunity, of honoring yourself, glorifying yourself, and bringing us the joy that we were made for. I pray that we would taste it now, even as we look forward to it for good. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O